This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Praise your listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so, uh, very excited about today's guests. I think this is her third time. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, lots of people, particularly since I started dropping the fact that I had reviewed Patrick Deneen's, uh, book for, uh, religion and liberty, uh, which is put out by the acting institute. They're all like, well, you got to get, and yeah, I got Stephanie Slade on. And I was like, well, I, I love that Stephanie Slade on, but my review isn't coming out for a while. It'd be kind of weird for like, like, and so I waited. And then, um, and then the other problem is I was just discussing is that uh, there's gonna be a lot of violent agreement on a lot of these these things, but that's okay. The, you know, part of the point of the remnant is to remnantize the eschaton with other remnant types. So um, uh, you can take your complaints to the complaint department. Um, with that, Stephanie Slade, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me back. So um, you are in, um, not that I could tell from, like I can see you by, by a video, but like all I see is a hotel room, but you are in fact in Grand rapids because you are also a um fellow for the acton institute i feel like i should also tell people that you're a, a senior editor at reason that's right yes so my full-time job is at reason but i also have this affiliation with the acton institute and one of the things that means is that i get to come out here for a week every summer and um, give some talks and meet some people and have some fun at acton university it's better than for a week in winter <laughs> that's that is true um actually grand rapids is a great town i gotta say um it's kind of like the the amount, you know, the, the DeVosses get a lot of grief, you know, in our world, but, um, the, the things they did to keep that town like quaint, charming and successful are, are really, really impressive. It's a story that, you know, should be told more, but anyway. Um, so what's the theme of this before we get into the Deneen stuff? I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to like, like, you know, you do a few deep breaths before you jump in the cold pool. Um, before we get into the Deneen stuff, what is, what is, what is the, you know, what are our friends at Acton? doing like what is going on out there as are you do you see dave bonson is he just like holding court and having people to kiss his ring and stuff probably so the the 
conference just kicked off last night. So it's just getting started. The first sessions are this morning. And uh, so I haven't even seen a lot of the people that I, I hope that I will get a chance to hang out with. And he would be one of them. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. But I assume somewhere, yes, in the conf- in the in the convention center, he is holding court and uh, and has has his fans, um, you know, yeah, uh, cir- circling. But but it's all just beginning today. So I, I don't know yet. We'll have to see. See, something a lot of people don't know is um, sort of like in the movie Color of Money, the real the real gambling goes on in uh, the practice rooms uh, at religious uh, liberty um, and free market conferences. But that's, that's sort of one of, the, one of the things we're not supposed to talk about in public. All right, so um, I will, uh, last thing I'll, I'll admit in terms of throat clearing here is that um, this is like the second time, that, at least the second time this has happened to me where I have reviewed a book thinking that I was harsh and um, not unduly harsh, just duly harsh. Um, but also being generous of feeling like I should be somewhat generous in spirit. And, and then when the book actually comes out and I see all the other reviews, it turns out that like, I'm one of the kindest reviewers. Out there. <laughs> um, and this happened to me with Dinesh D'Souza's book, like 15 years ago, his book enemy at home. I thought I'd sort of very deftly turned the knife and, 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 and denounced the book while at the same time being like, you know, trying to have Dinesh save face, which was a lost cause, it turned out. But um, and then everybody else just just destroyed the guy for that book, which he, he invited. Similarly, I think your your review was great. Um, there were some other really strong reviews out there. And it seems like everybody sort of came down. As I was saying on the acting podcast yesterday, the thing is kind of a pinata. You can hit it from any angle and get some reward. But why don't you just tell first of all, tell us who Patrick would be Patrick Ladine, Patrick Deneen is and what the book is and put the book in context as you see fit. Yeah, this has been such a widely reviewed book. I mean, a lot of people are paying attention to this because his first book was so influential so that there's become this almost secondary market and so many people reading and reviewing the new book and talking about it. And this review was great for this reason. And this review is great for that reason. And nobody has yet accused me of being overly kind to him. So, uh, so you have that going for you compared to me. Um, so Patrick Deneen is a political science professor at Notre Dame. Uh, in 2016, he had a book that came out called Why Liberalism Failed, um, and it got a lot of attention. It was very influential. It was sort of the statement of this new post-liberal conservative way of looking at the world, which says, essentially, m- modernity is um, a disaster, and we must uh, reject the, the philosophical liberal philosophical underpinnings of modernity. And of course, by liberal, he, they don't mean leftist or Democrat, right? Uh, in the American sense, they mean classically liberal. This philosophy that says individual liberty, limited government, personal responsibility, rule of law, these are the things that we put at the center of our system. Um, he and his, his friends in, on the post-liberal right think that this, that this philosophy has led us astray and has, has essentially you know, led us to this, this wreck that we live in today. This book was very influential. Barack Obama actually put it on his reading list. Uh, among other people. So it got it got some attention both on the right and on the left, sort of center left, reasonable left. Um, and and so now, but the question remain, you know, that everybody kept asking after the book came out was, okay, you've diagnosed this this alleged problem with modernity. Um, but what do you, what do we do about it? So this this new book that just came out this month um, called Regime Change is supposed to be, I think, the answer to that question, which is what do we what do we do? We we don't like the old liberal regime. So what are we going to replace it with and how are we going to do that? That I think is what people hoped the book would be. Um, but what many reviewers, um, including me and including you, have pointed out is that 
it, it, so, it sort of fails itself at that, at that task. Um, he doesn't seem to be very clear about what it is he wants, except in that, um, if I'm going to be as, as generous as, as I can be charitable to his argument, he would say, I think, um, in every society, you're going to have the, uh, an elite class that is actually doing the governing, the ruling. Um, and the problem with our, with our modern society, uh, that is, that he's identifying is that our elites are inherently deeply progressive and our people are inherently deeply conservative. And so there's this divide between what the elites are pushing upon us and what the people really want. And so he would say, what we need to do is um, enact somehow a peaceful but vigorous overthrow of the current elites, the progressive elites, and replace them with people who agree with Patrick Deneen. One correction. Uh, why liberalism failed was not Patrick Deneen's first book. It's just the first book anybody heard of. Yes, I should say. His earlier, his last book. Yeah, I, I actually read was it Democratic Faith a long time ago? I've actually known Deneen very peripherally for a while. Um, and uh, um, anyway, I don't need to get into that. So it seems to me, I mean, we should probably just take the, the claims one by one, right? So like, it seems to me like the, the analysis part falls apart for a bunch of reasons, but the, the, the biggest one, it seems to me, is, is not just that so this is the thing that I, I obviously perturbs you and perturbs me right which is this claim that right liberals by which he means all conservatives and all libertarians who don't well all libertarians and all conservatives who don't agree with him um are right liberals um basically have the same ideological teleological philosophical purpose aim mission as left-wing progressive elites and the idea that like, you know, William F. Buckley and James Burnham and, and Michael Novak and, and Father Newhouse and all of those guys, um, Irving Crystal, you know, were, were all hand in hand part of a popular front of a unified monolithic elite with a bunch of left-wing progressives. It's just incredibly stupid. I mean, I, I don't, you know, it just, it's a dumb claim and, um, it's, and it's unsupportable and he does makes really no attempt to support it in the chapter where he deals with the elite. He basically just focuses on the left because you can't make the case that he wants to just assert. But it's, it seems to me that like, if you look at any society, any pluralistic society, I don't, Russia might not fit this. China might be complicated. But the idea that the elite is a monolithic block in any society, any serious advanced society just seems to me sort of ludicrous on its face. And the idea that the many, right, he always wants to keep this dichotomy of the few, the elites, and the many, everybody else. According to this theory that, you know, white plumbers in Connecticut and, and tractor store managers in, in Georgia or Oklahoma have the exact same interests, see their interests the exact same way, regardless of their race, their creed, their religion, their region, um, all the rest. And that's ludicrous too. I mean, like anything, you know, you take five minutes and you look at how we do politics in this country and politicians are trying to shave slight bits off of different constituencies in different places. How do we get 5% more suburban women outside of Detroit or whatever? Um, if, if the world could be, if America could be reduced to four quadrants on a chart, 
um, it would put all of the pundits and political scientists and political consultants out of business, but it just can't be. Yeah, I, I, in my review, I make a what I admit to be a pretty bold claim, which is that every single one of the major claims in his book actually falls apart immediately when you start to scrutinize it. Um, and so one of the claims that he makes that I didn't even, you, you touch upon in, in your review and have done good work in your, in your, in your own books on, um, uh, that I just skipped over entirely was this idea that liberalism has failed and that we are living amid some sort of, you know, postmodern wreckage where everybody is miserable. And, you know, this, this is completely insane. It's an, an empirical claim. I skipped right over that and went straight to a second big claim of his, which is this idea that you just mentioned, which is that like, quote unquote, right liberals, which would be us and, and left liberals, um, meaning the progressives, the, the progressive left are identical. And he uses the word identical and quote monolithic, um, that there's no difference between us. This is absurd. And, and again, he does nothing to actually establish this. Um, he spends a lot of time, uh, you know, lamenting or, or, or critiquing this progressive elite that he claims includes us, but that the description has absolutely nothing to do with libertarians or, you know, classically liberal conservatives. So it's, he talks about how they hold the power, the power of the cultural institutions, academia and the mainstream media and Hollywood and so on. And, um, they're imposing, ramming down our throats, their woke agenda through woke capital. This is, of course, has nothing to do with what's happening on the right. This is entirely a left wing phenomenon. Um, but he wants to somehow assert that we are responsible for it as well. He, and the, and the way he does this again is just by asserting that classical liberalism necessarily includes the logic that leads to left progressive illiberalism, which is an insane thing to claim. And, and he doesn't support that. But that is the thing that he seems to believe is that we are responsible because the classically liberal idea that says, again, limited government and individual liberty and people should be able to live their lives, um, decide how to live their lives and pursue the good to the greatest extent practicable on their own, that this somehow produces this illiberal, woke, left progressive regime that is in fact, this is the thing that he, he was right about in his first book, that is in fact in many ways ascended and, and has holds a lot of power in our cultural institutions. But the idea that that liberals and classical liberalism, that the that these ideas, that this philosophy and that people on the right of center who who continue to believe that that, that is part of our cultural heritage are responsible for for this this illiberal turn on the left. That's where the argument just Im immediately breaks down. It's, it's so obvious. Another of his big claims, um, is, yeah, I mean, again, how bad are things really? Um, are the left and the right actually the same? And then another really big one is, again, as you alluded to just now, are the masses, the people, the populace, you know, the, the, the many, um, actually with Patrick Deneen? Are, do they, are they actually inherently deeply conservative in this particular way that he is insisting they are? Which is to say, socially very conservative, but economically of the left, economically leftist. I and mean, he's quite explicit about this. His agenda is leftist economically. He wants government intervention in the economy and government intervention in our social lives. So in, if you think about the way that people have often talked about our uh, politics in, a, in the American sense, they'll say, well, people, conservatives, they want to keep government out of your pocketbook and liberals or leftists, they want to keep government out of the bedroom, out of your bedroom. And what he's, what, you know, and libertarians, they want to keep government out of both the pocketbook and the bedroom. And what the post-liberals seem to want is to put government back into both those places. So that's what he's asserting. He, his claim is that the American people are with him, that that is what they would like the elites, how they would like the elites to govern. But he does no work at all to actually substantiate that claim. And I think it is quite 
laughable, actually, when you start to think about what that would entail, which includes things like, um, you know, crackdowns on pornography and re-implementing Sabbath laws. And the post liberals, many of them are are Catholics. They're the more extreme version of the post-liberal Catholic integralist view actually says that the that the the civil government, our our, our the state, um, ought to be subordinated to the Catholic Church to to the Pope. So, I mean, this is the direction that they're pushing, and I think the idea that the American people are with him um, is just completely insane. Even if it's also true that they are increasingly there's an increasingly a divide between where the average American, the center of gravity in you know among the people in this country are and where the left elites would like the country to be. Yeah. So, I, uh, and, and, and I, I really, the one thing, only thing I'm truly kicking myself for not dealing with more in my review is this point that, um, was it, uh, Nathan Schluter, I don't know how to pronounce his name is a Hillsdale professor who reviewed the book for public discourse. And it's a good review. He, he opens with this point, which it, it kills me that I just didn't do this. Um, I had huge problems with why liberalism failed. I mean, I just, I, this idea that like everything has gotten worse since John Locke, I just think is one of the most profoundly craptacular, silly sort of claims. I mean, I'm not saying everything has gotten better, but if you're going to make a list of things that got better and a list of things that got worse, the things that got better is a lot longer <laughs> than the things that got worse. But the thing I praised in trying to find common ground with Patrick, I did a panel or two with him, you know, back then was that his solution in why liberalism failed wholly acceptable to me, right? I mean, like, I, I know you're a libertarian. You will turn into a pillar of salt if you don't cast shade on, on anti-pornography laws and the like. But like, my point forever has been federalism, right? And I, I understand that the internet makes all of that a lot harder. And I've conceded that and it breaks my heart. But, you know, that's what happens. It's progress for you. But the best thing about Deneen's book, which was, again, the first book, Why Liberalism Failed, was that he said, look, the solutions aren't going to be a one-size-fits-all thing from above. We're going to have to have the kind of sympathetic imagination to let a lot of the different communities figure out how to live righteous lives and blah, 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 blah. And I'm totally down with that. You know, and if, in theory, if you could come up with a system that allowed for the banning of pornography in a specific state or a specific town, um, uh, the re position of Sabbath laws, all that kind of stuff. I got no problem with it. Right. And as long as people have the right to exit and you do it on a local basis, so you're, you're guaranteed to have large majorities of people support it. But then anyway, as, as this, this Schluter piece in public discourse points out, uh, Deneen caved to pressure from Adrian Vermeule and decided that defending federalism was unacceptable and that a true integralist program must have a one size fits all policy um, from above. If, if at minimum from the U S government, if not from the, the Pope in Rome and um, like, that's such crazy talk. That's such an intellectual and moral surrender in my, my eyes. Um, and I don't know the full story about, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say it was a sincere change of heart, but like, to be browbeat by Adrian Vermeule into accepting sort of, uh, um, you know, cradle to grave, ultramontane social conservatism and statism seems like a, a pretty steep price to pay. Yeah, so this is very inside baseball, but after Why Liberalism Failed came out, Adrian Vermeule wrote a long review of it in which he said, what, what, 
what was a great, what is a great book could have been a masterpiece if he had been, if he had sort of had sort of had the courage to follow these ideas to their logical conclusion. Um, which is to say, he he faulted Deneen for saying liberalism has failed, so let's retreat into into our local communities and build and build the communities that we want to see, you know, and 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 um and try to 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 foment an, a new, better way, you know, alternative to liberalism from the from the ground up. And he and Deneen said, you know, trying to impose some new big ideology from the top down is not the answer. And Vermeule said, oh, yes, it is. And if you actually took your own ideas seriously, you would accept it. And it seems, I mean, it certainly looks as if um, Deneen felt chastened by that review and, and you know, followed, continued to follow his ideas and decided that, yes, the answer, in fact, to liberalizing failing is, in fact, imposing a new, what he calls common good conservatism, which is a very anodyne sounding name for what he actually wants, which I, I, uh, I allude in my review, it ends up sounding an awful lot like some sort of fascism, late fascism, in fact. But um, again, you know, government, putting government back into everything, uh, both into the pocketbook and the bedroom, you know, having leftist economics paired with um, sort of aggressive um, right-wing social policy um, is what he's for. Um, and, and, and yeah, doing that all from the top down, he still, Deneen still, still seems squeamish about admitting what would actually, what it would actually take to, to do that. Because of course, if the people aren't with him, if, if the public really isn't lining up to overthrow the elites and replace them with a bunch of Patrick Deneens and Adrian Vermeules, um, and the current elites obviously are not, are not interested in what he's selling, then the question of how, how do you get there, um, it, 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 the only answer that seem that that you know can we can think of is some sort of um, small violent overthrow by a, by a different set of elites of the current elites that will then impose their will upon the people who are not all bought in yet, but who once the the new Deninian elite takes power can convince them is actually the way that they they will flourish. And and Vermeule comes right out and basically says this: Yes, we need to. A small number of people need to take power. We need to um, to to obtain positions within the administrative state, and we need to use the law to reorient society to what we recognize and the people do not yet understand is in their own best interest. Um, but Deneen doesn't seem to want to come right out and say this. He flirts with it. He talks. He uses these phrases like we must embrace. Machiavellian means to Aristotelian ends, but he won't admit what that actually means, which gives him some amount of plausible deniability. Um, it, it forces us to all speculate about what would actually take, you know, go into to achieving this vision, um, because he won't come right out and say it. But I think we can be pretty, pretty confident that it would not be, it would not be pretty, especially since the one thing that he says right up, you know, right off the bat without any squeamishness is it would, it would be a rejection of liberalism, which is again, this thing that says that rule of law and, um, you know, individual rights and individual liberties, uh, are, are the, are the sort of the foundation of what our, our regime is built on. He wants to get rid of those things. We know that. So what he would do to get to his preferred alternative is unclear, but we know it could be, it would, we can assume it would be illiberal. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Aura Frames. Long-time listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. 
I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Apparently, again, from this public discourse review, when when Deneen changed his position on the federalism stuff or the subsidiarity stuff, and you know, in America, the localism, uh, he he said, "I think Adrian Vermeule will be very excited by my talk tonight. He will conclude that I have finally come around that we need Schmidtian and Machiavellian assertion of power." to assert the will of those who should be the good guys. The Machiavellian thing, people, people think they know what Machiavellianism was about, although I, I got to say, the, the guys on the, um, I did the Acton podcast yesterday and um, made a very good point about how, like, before you get into anything about the details of what Machiavellian politics mean, the first thing you don't, you, the one thing you don't do if you're a Machiavellian is talk about your Machiavellianness, right? I mean, it's like first rule of Fight Club. Like you don't tell, hey, I'm about to use lies and deceit to manipulate you. That's the thing you don't say out loud, right? But the the damning thing in that is less the Machiavelli stuff than admitting Schmidian. And this also gets super in the weeds. But um, what's his first name? Carl Schmidt. Um, was considered the crown jurist of Nazism, uh, one of the most important Nazi philosophers. And when I say Nazi philosophers, I mean like straight up Nazi philosopher, like, like Nazis are great, might as well have been a subtitle of one of his books. And like, not saying it wasn't brilliant, um, but, you know, the weird thing about, so Sch Schmidt's, among Schmidt's most famous lines was, um, tell me who your enemy is and I tell you who you are. Right. And it was this really sort of owning pure cynical power politics as the essence of politics and everything else is just sort of window dressing on the, the, the sheer will, the powerness of, of, of politics. And there's just something really grotesque about people owning that conception of politics and thinking that it won't corrupt them. I mean, this is my, my friend Yuval Levin makes this point all the time is that cynicism is very hard to hold onto. And eventually you come to believe your own BS because it's just a more comfortable place to be. Um, but to knowingly say up front, yeah, we're going to use 
lying, raw power, if we have to, lying, deceit, raw power to impose our vision on everybody else. I don't know if it should be, I'm not saying you should lose tenure or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just saying it should be, you shouldn't have to have much more of a conversation with the person because they've just sort of, they've told us who they are. Yeah. So to pull the lens back from the Deneen book to the sort of larger phenomenon of the new right, the post-liberal right, this is, this is the thing that I've, that, that has caused me to basically stop writing about everything else and start focusing all my attention on what's going on with the conservative movement is this, I'm horrified and, and fascinated, but mostly horrified by this Schmittian turn that, that this, these factions on the right have taken. Um, and, and openly so, so, so that they are name checking Carl Schmidt often. Um, one of the things he was famous for is, is insisting that politics is, uh, entirely about the friend enemy distinction. People, some people are our friends and we ought to use power to help those people. And some people are our enemies and we ought to use power to hurt them. That is what, you know, what, what much of his philosophy boils down to. And it is certainly the thing in his philosophy that these folks on the new right seem to have, have, you know, uh, grasped and grasp onto and, and be have decided it's going to animate their 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 thinking about politics going forward. And so the new right is, I think, an umbrella term and it, it includes a bunch of different factions. And of those, the quote unquote post-liberals or Catholic integralists is only one faction. I always like, you know, try to point that out. And there has been this talk about inside baseball, like the, the, there has been this sort of divorce between the national conservatives and the post-liberals. And then there's also the, the neo-reactionaries and and the sort of you know, the um, descendants of the alt-right, the dissident right. There's all these different factions. But one thing they all seem to have in common is this Schmidian view of politics. Politics is a war. It is one in which all that matters is who has power. So we better make sure that our people have power and are willing to wield it against those we don't like. Because we know that they would do the same to us because that's all politics is. Um, they would use power against us to try to destroy us. So we must try to destroy them first. And we're justified in doing so because we are realistic in a way that, that liberalism is un, is unrealistic or is naive, is what they would say, um, about what politics is and what it is for. That that sort of, it, it really, really is at, at such a deep level a rejection of the liberal bargain that says we can live in peace together even if we don't share, you know, our, our, even if we don't share all the same values, as long as we agree that I will, I will exercise forbearance. I will forbear. I, w- I will, I will resist the urge to use violence to impose my way of life on you. As long as you will do the same, you know, give me the same in return. And, it, and by accepting that, that's liberalism. Um, we can live peacefully together, even if we, even if we don't share all the same values. And it leaves lots of space for us to then negotiate and try through persuasion and cultural pressure and market power to shape the world that we want to live in and to get other people to live the way we want them to live. But it takes the violence off the table. And that's the thing that they want to put back on the table is basically violence and threat of violence. That's what they mean when they talk about Schmidt and and the friend-enemy distinction or a, a phrase you often hear on the new right these days is that we ought to be willing to, conservatives ought to be willing to wield power to reward our friends and punish our enemies. I mean, that's straight out of Carl Schmidt. Yeah, the, um, I mean, I, I've always taken my, I've said this many times on here, my fair share of blame, because I actually think the gateway drug, a lot of this thinking came from something that I contributed to, which not on purpose, but was Saul Alinsky envy. And um, there was this moment 15 years ago, you know, Dinesh basically plagiarized, de facto plagiarized my book to rewrite liberal fascism in a more asinine way. Um, You know, as if my critics didn't think my version was asinine enough. And he did the movie, which I still regret being interviewed for 
which is largely about Saul Alinsky and all this kind of stuff. And there was this, this thing that because of the connection, again, which I was a leader in pointing out between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Saul Alinsky, there became this fascination about once, once the right, certain segments of the right became convinced that the left always wins, they're like, aha, it's because of this Alinsky stuff. And, um, and you started to see people say, we have to embrace Alinskyite tactics, which are basically another way of saying, maybe not Schmidtian, but sort of it, within the context of a democracy, Schmidtian adjacent or Machiavellian adjacent, where you can lie, you can manipulate, you can deceive, you can distort, as long as it's for the greater good, right? Lying for justice, as the left used to say. And the thing that bothered me about it was, was like, I brought up Alinsky to criticize the guy, saying this is not the way you want to do politics, this is outrageous. Um, um, you know, and made a big deal, you know, about how he was like, you know, there's a blurb about how great Lucifer was, you know, in, 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 uh, uh, in rules for radicals. And, and for a while people agreed with me. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, wait, but they always win. So we need to win. So we need to do what they do. And I think you can actually find a lot of Schmidt in liberal fascism as well. Again, I criticize him, but like, I always felt like I was one of the ones who got this stuff into the bloodstream before it started to mutate, mutate into, into stupidity. But let's, let's, let's just stay on the liberalism thing for two seconds. One of the things that, so maybe you're more of Mesian and I'm more Hayekian. I don't know the answer to that, but, um, and maybe I just misheard some of you saying, but like part of my problem with the, with Deneen's discussion of, of liberalism and also a lot of the defenders of liberalism is the way they make it a like this coherent abstract philosophy rather than what it is at least as much as which is a cultural institutional traditional adaptation that yielded better results right the the the, the stuff that you're talking about about you know the, the liberal deal or the liberal bargain about no violence that wasn't pointy-headed intellectuals idea on a piece of paper. It was this thing that they stumbled into after Europe killed each other for generations over stupid issues of conscience and, and, and religious difference. And then they're like, crap, this isn't, this doesn't work anymore. And they sort of settled into this, the rules of a ceasefire, which is what I think liberalism kind of comes out of in terms of this sort of spontaneous, uh, Hayekian process. And, so I'm just kind of curious, where do you come down? Is, 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 is liberalism more a series of cultural institutions or is it a hard and fast philosophical orientation? I mean, I think it's both. And, and I want to, I, I appreciate the distinction, um, but I think it's, it, it's unnecessary to throw away the theory um, because so, so these two things can happen in tandem. So you have evolved institutions, of course, we learn our way through trial and error to how to live more peacefully together. That's a thing that has happened in history. Um, but then there has also been, you know, concomitant with that, people who have tried to understand why does this way of, of uh, structuring a society yield flourishing? And why does this way of structuring society yield misery? And how can we formalize the things that lead to flourishing and, and, you know, minimize the things that lead to misery. And so having the philosophers who, who try to work through that stuff and put it down on paper, I think is really valuable. And our American tradition, of course, is one in which we didn't just inherit 
you know, our way of life. We had statesmen who said, okay, we want to take all the lessons of the old world and build a system and put it into practice in the new world that will be better. And I think it largely succeeded, right? So, but they had to actually put that down on paper. They had to think through what are we, what are we going to do in order to try to produce this flourishing and reduce this misery? Um, and so there was theory there. There's theory and practice. They happen together. And I don't want to throw away the theory. And I also, but one of the things that's so frustrating to me is the way so many cr- critics of liberalism will try to reduce it to a single thinker. It is just John Locke, for example, right? And it's like, no, this is a, a rich tradition that has a lot more to it than just the sort of yeah, pure ration, rational, uh, rationalistic way of life that, that, that some thinkers maybe, that was like one strain in the rope of, of liberalism, but there's a lot more to it. So I want to, I want to try to preserve both if possible. I, I think, and we can, we can always critique particular strains, particular strands, um, and say that, you know, this thinker got this right and this wrong, or the, this group of thinkers, liberal thinkers, you know, took the, took the movement astray, but this other group of thinkers brought, brought it back or had a, a, an important and valuable counterweight to them or whatever it is. I mean, that's the way this actually happens. This happened in, in, in history. So I'm comfortable with all of that. And I, I don't like the idea of saying it's only about the practice and not about the theory, although that distinction is valuable. And one of the things that we can say is that whatever you may think of the theory, in practice, it has yielded many, many wonderful positive results. And so are you really sure that you want to sacrifice all of them, throw them all away in the hopes that your um, envisioned alternative, you know, ideological alternative that hasn't been tried, that hasn't emerged through practice, you know, through practice will be better. That's, that's, I think, one of the questions that we can um, justifiably put to the post-liberals. Now, there is a question that they can put to us that's really to all of this that maybe we need to do a better job of thinking about and, and figuring out how to answer, which is that if liberalism is in many ways a bargain, um, one in which I like the phrase mutual forbearance is exercised, right? Both sides agree to this bargain. Um, there are plenty of people on the left, including some very powerful, influential people on the left and movements on the left that have essentially you know, repudiated, repudiated it. There is a lot of illiberalism in our society coming from the left. And so what the post-liberals say is your bargain makes sense in theory, but the left is not playing by those rules. So given that, that is not mutual forbearance, you're saying unilateral forbearance. And does that still make sense? And that is a question we have to answer. I think the answer still is yes, that we can still defeat illiberalism through liberalism by main, because this, as you point out, beautifully in your review, because we are ultimately in this country, such a deeply um, liberal society. Our culture is so liberal. I don't think, I don't, I don't think that illiberalism is going to beat liberalism if we stay true to li- the liberal ideals. Um, and, but, but I think that, you know, they're, they're making a fair point, which is there are plenty of people on the left who are not playing by the rules. So why should we? And we have to have an answer to that question. No, I think that's fair. I want to start from the beginning of that and then I'll get to that in a second. I think, Look, I, ultimately, I was just trying to pick a fight, but I, I think I agree with you. You know, we're both sort of Meyer type, Frank Meyer types, and Meyer said it was both, right? It's that it's both the tradition, the, the lived experience of Western civilization married to the ideas that refine those experiences and point, the, point things in the correct direction. And like the way I put it, the way I reconciled this in, in Suzy the West was that, you know, one of the places that liberalism comes from, and it comes from a lot of places, but one of the places it comes from is just the friggin' weirdness of the English, right? The, the English had these really strange customs for Europe. It's part of the Whiggish history, you know, it's like you get parliamentary democracy out of these like clan meetings and 
the idea that a man's home is his castle started with this, these weird notions about whether a sovereign of a tribe could go into your hut and then, you know, you fast forward and you get the fourth amendment, right? Because what happens is over time you take these customs and you find the principle in there that works. That is the key to its success. And you try to, you know, you try to skim away the, the dross, you know, and find the, the, the gold nugget inside of it. Right. And so notes on tolerate, you know, like when Locke was talking about toleration, you know, he was like, you have to have tolerance for all these religious denominations, you know, and, and understand that you can't, you know, oppress them and, you know, blah, 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 but not the Catholics. (laughs) And then you get to America and all of a sudden Jefferson's talking about not just Catholics, but Jews and Hindus and pagans and, and whoever it's that sort of the, the, the inherent principle that we discover often discover through trial and error that then people thinkers come along and say let's polish this up and figure out what's really going on here and so it's very difficult to disentangle them but i think the reason why it's a really important thing to remember is the way Deneen and a lot of these guys argue is they seem to think that they can convince everybody out there like just if they could just sort of take over the tv stations for five minutes and read from some planned speech you know with their junta that would convince everybody in the country that John Locke was wrong, that all of a sudden they won't be liberals anymore, right? That they won't want to live, you know, tolerate their, 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 you know, their black or white or Muslim or gay neighbors, that they won't want to treat people with, you know, sort of respect anymore, that they won't believe in free enterprise and all this kind of stuff. These are habits of the heart, right? That are just written into the American character. Um, and, you can't argue away, argue them away easily by coming out with a book that says, oh, you're just all enthralled to the spell of a philosopher. Most of you have no idea who he was, right? And that's the thing that drives me crazy. Since we've both critiqued uh, Janine and others for not actually bringing any data to bear on the argument, I think it's worth pointing out that even you know, there's, there's this idea that, well, conservatism used to be about free markets, for example, but that there's a realignment happening. And so now the Republican Party is the party of the working class. And so it needs to rethink its economic policy and move in this left, economically leftist direction. This is an, an argument that that is implicit in Deneen's book and, and, and it's explicit in Deneen's, Deneen's book and implicit in a lot of what the new right is doing. Um, but, you know, you look at the data and it still does uh, support this argument that you're making, which is that the the, you know, we are we are culturally classically liberal, and that goes for the, the even the people who voted for Donald Trump in 2020. There was this this very interesting and I think helpful poll done of 2020 Trump voters um, by the it was done by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in like January released in like January of 2021, and it found that like this idea that in fact they were rejecting um, globalization and and free markets and 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 these sorts of things that that was what was driving the Trump phenomenon is really belied by the fact that like you know, most of the people who voted for Trump still believe in free markets. They still believe in international free trade, even, you know, the, the vast majority, like, um, and at, at best on some of these issues, they're divided maybe 50, 50 uh, about whether we should, which is a change, right? It, maybe it used to be 90% of conservatives were in favor of free trade. And now it's only 45% or 30% or something. But, um, but the idea that, that, that there is, that has been this rejection on the right, you know, of, of these, these thing these particular, you know, commitments on uh, when it comes to free, free markets and free trade um, is belied by the data. And I think there's a lot of, of, of just both, well, anecdotal and reportorial and um, uh, empirical evidence that that goes sort of 
that, that, that that's just a really high barrier that the new right would have to overcome that they don't seem to be clear-eyed about at all. Yeah, there's also, I mean, there's also uh, a corruption involved here in that, you know, as you put it, so the GOP is becoming more of a, a working class party, which I think it is. And so therefore, conservatives should stop believing the things they insisted were objectively true. And good for the working class. They, we used to say that. They used to say that. The, and, just so like the, and so it, it show, like, you know, the, one of my other obsessions on this podcast is the corruption of uh, sort of the conservative intellectual class where they, they've kind of in, absorbed this idea that they need to be political consultants for the GOP. And so it's perfectly fine as a matter of hack politics that if Marco Rubio says, oh, I can get more votes by being a, uh, by pandering to union workers at Amazon, you know, that is a very old story of American, of politics, right? That's what politicians do is they disappoint true believers. Um, But if you've spent your life writing about how free markets are good and they're good for working class people, if you spent your life saying that capitalism is the best and really only anti-poverty program around and someone says, well, but then the, if you keep saying, if you get, if you keep saying that the GOP won't get as many votes from people who want a greater welfare state, the correct response to that is who gives a rat's ass, right? It's, if, if, if you think it's true, you should say it regardless of what the politics of it are. And if you think it's not true, you shouldn't be saying it whether it's good politics or not. And I think that there's just an enormous amount of this on the right, which gets to this whole Schmidtian Machiavellian thing of taking positions that are popular on the right and then trying to bend them into a coherent worldview and prove that you weren't, you know, uh, inconsistent. And I think one of the best examples, which I don't think anybody has mentioned from the Deneen book is immigration. Because, you know, there's this old joke about, you know, uh, having, bringing in workers to do jobs Americans won't do or an old line, you know, that kind of thing. Well, for people like Deneen, they should want, you know, maybe not just open borders, but like a lot of immigration from certain parts of the world to import people who have values that Americans no longer have. Right. I mean, like the immigrants are more religious. They're more family oriented. Um, they're the, they have a more and often a, a different view of the role of the state. Like he should want to import the, and since he wants to be this, if you actually are sincere about this sort of one universal church kind of approach to politics, why do you care about borders anyway? Right. But like he can't write that stuff because it would infuriate the people that, you know, are going to buy the book. This, this actually is interestingly another wedge sort of um, remaining wedge between Denise and Vermeule, where Vermeule will come right out and say, I want Our Lady of Guadalupe to be, he wants to unite the entire North American content, continent, you know, under, under the, um, uh, authority of the Catholic Church, right? He wants to bring as many people who are especially Catholics, um, to our country as possible in order to change the culture in the direction he thinks it should change. Um, and Denine, again, although many of his you know, explicit commitments might point toward him agreeing with that, doesn't say that in the book. In fact, he bashes left and right liberals for being so pro-immigration because he says that what it does is empower the um, management, the manager class and the ownership class, right? It's, it's, it's quite Marx, Marxian, actually, the analysis um, that, you know, you you liberals want to bring lots of poor people here in order to enrich the, you know, make the rich richer. Um, so Deneen does not follow Vermeule on that, at least in this book. And, it, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up there eventually. But um, this is one of those, this is one of those issues that actually is 
immigration specifically is an issue that is dividing the new right from within itself. Uh, you see this, uh, this, this week, there has been a lot of, um, bickering on Twitter among new right people about whether Janine is or is not a good, um, you know, emblem of, of post-liberal or, or new right thinking because he is in some ways not willing to go full race realist the way some on the new right would like him to. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. So, like, I didn't realize that about Vermeule. That's good to know. Um, I don't cover, I don't follow this stuff as granularly as, as you do. Um, in part, cause I just find it so depressing. And in part, because I, and this is the question I have for you is I struggle with this is how seriously should I take it? Right. Cause on the one hand, I, I think people get misled. Like I, I think that these guys think they are a much bigger movement than they are. Um, I think that, um, you could you could do a f- poll or focus group of even the most you know I, I don't know how you would des- define it but like the most politically engaged people in the country right and the number of them who would recognize you know Deneen's name Sorbamari's name Adrian Vermeule's name never mind the ideas they're associated with it would be minuscule now that applies to me too but I'm not the one saying I'm my podcast is called The Remnant. I'm not claiming to lead some mass movement that is going to swamp the halls of power and take over every institution in the country. They are. And as far as I can tell, I, I kind of, you know, it, I don't like quoting Stalin, but you kind of feel like, how many troops does the Pope have kind of thing about this? So on the flip side, there's the George Will argument, which is that small, committed, ideological minorities move the world. And that, um, and as someone who has been invested 30 years in caring about what conservatives say and believe, I kind of feel like it's my job to like be engaged in this and take it seriously. Um, even though I struggle with sometimes of like getting attention f- from me sometimes is the, a big gift to s- some of these jackwads. Um, and so anyway, I struggle with this. Um, where do you come down on this? I mean, I'm glad you're doing the work that you're doing. I truly am. And you know, my, my, my old amanuensis, Jack Butler, does a lot of stuff on this, but I, I struggle with how much of my headspace I should be dedicating to this stuff. It's a, a super good and important question. And, and I'm always trying to thread this needle correctly. Um, I, I was debating with somebody a few months ago where she was saying, these, these people are taking over the conservative movement. And I was like, well, I don't know if I would go that far. I think there's still lots, probably the average conservative or the average Republican voter even is um, intuitively sort of in his, in his or her guts still pretty classically liberal. Um, I was at a Heritage Foundation event and talking to some of their donors 
Um, and, and they were saying, yeah, you know, we're becoming the working class party. The Republican party is becoming the working class party. And I said, okay, so do you think that means that, um, they, that the Republicans need to rethink their commitments to free markets and free trade? And these donors were like, God, no, of course not. We're conservatives. We believe in free markets and free trade. Like we believe in individual liberty. We believe in limited government. This is, I think, a very, uh, a deep commitment, uh, uh, in America and, and even on the right. And so these folks who are, who are explicitly rejecting that, which is what is happening, the new right is, again, I would say primary, the, the, the key characteristic that, dif- that differentiates it from the old school fusionist, you know, classically liberal right is we reject that. We reject liberalism. Um, and so there, although there are a bunch of factions on the right, um, I think that they're, and I think, although there are a bunch of factions on the right, that's the thing that unites them. The question is, how powerful are they and how, you know, how um, much attention should we give them? And it's like, ah, I don't think most people have heard of these guys. I don't think even most Catholics in the pew have ever heard of Adrian Vermeule, right? Um, but I have heard from a lot of people who would know that the sort of current crop of young, let's say Catholic seminarians, young men who are studying to become Catholic priests are ensorcelled by what Deneen and Vermeule are, are writing and saying. And so that makes me very nervous because although it may be true that the vast majority of Catholics um, are uninterested um, or, or oblivious and you know, good for them, rightly so, um, about what's happening here, if the next generation of Catholic priests are bought into this stuff, that's going to have a huge impact on the, sh- the, the sort of uh, the, the, the shape and the, and the culture of the Catholic church and which of course has many spillover effects into the larger culture. So I do, I think it matters in this, in this way that is hard to quantify. Um, and the same thing goes with Vermeule, of course, is a, a Harvard law professor. Uh, I'm hearing that there are many young law students who are very, uh, they find these ideas very appealing. You know, if the next generation of people are bought into, instead of originalism or, or uh, the sort of traditional federalist society kind of way of looking at, at the constitution, at jurisprudence, um, if instead they're bought into what Adrian Vermeule is selling, which he calls common good constitutionalism, which is explicitly a rejection of originalism, um, that's going to have a huge effect on what the, what, you know, what court, what, what, uh, suits get brought and what, 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 you know, decisions get rendered uh, down the line. Even if your average Republican voter doesn't know about any of this, your average Catholic in the pew has never heard of these people. So we got to care, but we also got to keep perspective. And it's, it's hard to know how to, how to walk that line correctly. Yeah, I mean, the Federalist Society thing, um, I think I was talking to the acting guys about this off after the show, so I apologize if it was part of the recorded conversation, but I spoke at, to the, during the pandemic, I spoke by remote to the Harvard Federalist Society, and, um, and I was asking somebody, uh, you know, like, how many of them are sort of common good types, and how many of them are sort of traditional Federalist, you know, limited government you know, either libertarian leaning or social conservative leaning types. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but the answer was something like, you know, a, a third and a third and a third or a third, you know, and 40% in the middle and whatever, you know, you know but I find that incredibly depressing. My, my suspicion is it's gotten a little better because of Dobbs, yes. right? I mean, like one of the reasons why I think, I, I think it was a terrible blow to like the Josh Hammer types, um, that that row was overturned. It, it it basically exploded. It was like a grenade at, at Compact Magazine, the, the Sorab joint, and because it just it so fundamentally undermines their argument and or their indictment of of the system. Um, and so I agree with you. Like like the things like the Federalist Society worry me because. 
part of the problem is, and no offense, you're, you're not a kid, but you're a younger person than I am. And the problem with young people is they get really worked up about exciting ideas that they think get them more significance and prominence and power and a shorter trajectory to some sort of place of prominence. And I've always seen the Josh Hammer thing as something like that. It's like, man, you really want me to climb the greasy pole and pay my dues and argue my way up to the top of the Federalist Society when I can start a new club on campus and I'll be the head of it, right? You know, and I think there's a lot of that kind of thinking um, on the new right. I mean, like the, this this Gavin Wax, I think is his name, who took over the New York Young Republicans Club. And the guy's a moron and a thug. Um, and he's literally a rhino because he's like, if, if Trump's not the nominee, yeah, I'm going to vote for, he'd vote for RFK. Um, you know, it's like these guys just want power. They want to be celebrities. They want to be, you know, influencers and that kind of stuff. And my problem with most of them, with most of this, these things is you can always tell when an intellectual, a self-described intellectual movement is not in fact actually very intellectual when it doesn't know that it's, it doesn't know the history of its own ideas, right? And so this is a point you recently wrote about in Reason, about how the new right isn't all that new. This has been one of my obsessions for a long time is like this whole integralist thing. We had this fight 40 years ago um, at National Review and elsewhere. But like, I just want to read this passage. Uh, Josh Hammer wrote for The American Mind, um, which is, my sense of it is, it's, it's the place that publishes the stuff that's too crazy for the Claremont Review of Books these days, um, which is saying something. The only re- this is Hammer saying this. The only relevant question is: Will the right respond in kind by rejecting "quote unquote" live and let live style faux neutrality at all levels, including at the national level, and instead impose its own common good oriented theological, anthropological, and political vision of mankind as a natural corollary? Will the right get its hands dirty at the national level? And do something about the horrifically biased prosecutorial apparatuses responding in kind to the left's weaponization of those apparatuses by rewarding the forces of civilizational sanity and punishing the forces of civilizational arson within the confines of prudence, reading, and the rule of law. A couple paragraphs later, it is therefore imperative that we return that we return the Bible to the classroom, scripture to the public square, and end once and for all the ahistorical noxious charade of, quote, separation of church and state. In conjunction, a properly, properly oriented rightist political order must wield the levers of all available intermediary institutions, meaning behavior incentivizing changes to the tax code, changes to the process of constitutional interpretation, and so forth, to bolster the forces of civilizational sanity, e.g. the truism of sexual dimorphism, and punish the forces of civilizational arson, e.g. the transgender agenda. If this sounds at least a bit like what Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban once referred to as, quote, illiberal democracy, well, that's because it is. So, like, none of the, like, he's, he's sounding, pretending to sound like he's acknowledging the intellectual roots of this idea by going back to Viktor Orban like five years ago, when these ideas are freaking ancient. Right, this idea you know, of getting rid of the separation of church and state and taking over every institution. Um, you know, you can go back to czarist absolutism, or you can go back to one of my favorite concepts from Nazi philosophy, which was the Gleichschaltung, 
which said that every institution in the culture had to be aligned with the ideological and political imperatives of the state. And so long as it was, it didn't actually have to be formally taken over by the state. It could simply be co-opted as long as it was ideologically compliant. And there's just like, it's, it, I haven't, I bet you could go to the Wikipedia page for Gleichschaltung and it would read like it was an explanation of that paragraph. And, um, and I, the, the problem I have is like, again, is that these young people were, were intrigued by this stuff. They think it's all new ideas when it is also profoundly old and reactionary. And I don't have any problem at all uh, with the idea that we ought to fight on the cultural battlefield to try to win back the culture in the ways that it has, uh, you know, to the extent that our culture has drifted, which in many ways it has, away from things that I believe as a practicing Catholic, for example. Um, we ought to try to, to remedy that. The question is, do we use the coercive power of the state, right? Do we threaten people with jail time and fines if they don't um, go along with us? Or do we limit ourselves to the non-governmental sphere of society, the sort of social institutions and civil society institutions through uh, persuasion, through social pressure, through market forces, so on and so forth? Um, do we try to start our own institutions, um, cultural institutions that will outcompete those on the left, do we try to take them over in some way without resorting to, uh, you know, co-opting the government and having it do it for us? Um, yeah, sure, we can do all of that. I'm in favor of it. And in fact, I think as a good fusionist, I think that that is a thing that we have not done as well as we could and we should have on the right, which is to say, fusionism says that both liberty and virtue are non-negotiable. I think we have tended to focus on promoting liberty, rightly so, uh, but we have not necessarily done as much to... Uh, build institutions that promote virtue, non-governmental institutions that promote virtue. Uh, we haven't focused on that as conservatives as much as we could and should. And probably this is coming straight out of Yuval Levin, your friend, and uh, somebody I admire very much. Um, we need to redouble our attention, our focus on uh, institution building and on cultural change. Um, the only disagreement I have really is, can you use the threat of coercion to do it? And, and right. And so like, I don't, just like, I don't think it's okay for somebody to go up to me and put a gun to my head and, and tell me that I must do what, what they like and live the way they like. I don't want to pass laws and use the, the administrative state to force people to live the way, the way, the way I want them to either. There are lots and lots and lots of other ways that we can go about trying to take back these institutions or build competing institutions that, that, you know, or, or whatever it is to try to change the culture, to try, to try to change the, the situation, to address these, the legitimate problems that some on the post-liberal right have pointed to um, without resorting to government. That is the disagreement. Yeah, okay, so that is the disagreement at the level of first principles, but just to bring this full circle back to sort of the mean stuff, there's just sort of also the analytical disagreement. Like I remember, I wrote a few pieces about this in the 90s um, before, even before I went to National Review. Um, there was this big moment, the success of Fox News, Republicans took back Congress for the first time in 40 years. Um, there was this big push to create alternative conservative institutions, conservative media, conservative museums, conservative this, conservative bowling leagues, conservative, conservative, conservative. It was all blah, blah, blah. It was all wonderful, right? And my argument, you know, now for 30 years is this is a bad idea because, I mean, intellectual magazines are a different thing. Um, think tanks are a different thing, right? These are idea incubators. and you know, but like as great as I used to think and sometimes still do think Hillsdale is, um, the average American orthodontist 
is going to be a lot prouder. It's just going to want to send their kid to Harvard over Hillsdale. And it's not because they'll necessarily get a better education at Harvard. I, in some cases, I think they won't. It's just that old, just like you can't make new old friends, you can't make new old institutions. And these are our institutions too. They're American institutions. And having a few more conservatives at Harvard is more valuable than having a few more Hillsdales. But it's not an either, it's not an either or proposition. My point is that we, that we can explore all of these avenues for trying to change the culture short of... No, I, I agree with that. My, my point is, I'm just building up to... My, my point is, I agree with that entirely. My point is that I remember during this, this moment, at some point, Irving Kristol was asked at an AI brown bag talk, he was asked, what do you make of this idea of creating new conservative institutions? And Irving, in classic function, took a drag on his cigarette and said, who are you going to get to staff them? Because, you know, even at Fox News today, you go one or two levels down, it's a largely liberal you know, bunch of people there. Um, this idea that the, this hammer thing, right, or the Deneen thing, that you were going to like, like the caddies on caddy day at the Bushwood country club come storming in to every institution and take over every institution, every mediating institution in the country that you're going to, you're going to bend Hollywood and the recording industry and the fashion industry and higher education. You're going to bend all of these things to your will and get them right with Jesus on your post-liberal integralist thing. It's like, who would what army? I mean, that's just like, like literally like it is, it is, it is, purely LARPing fantasy talk that these guys have anything like the troops, the cultural power, the persuasiveness, or just the raw numbers to do a 10th to a hundredth of what they're talking about is imperative that we do right away. And that's the part that offends me about having to pay so such close attention to it is because they're seducing all of these gullible, young, sometimes very smart kids into joining a mass movement that's a micro movement. Right. right. No, that that's absolutely fair. But you know, here's here's an example. Just this morning at Acton, um, I was having breakfast with some some people who are here specifically from the classical schools movement. This is uh, this is a phenomenon. I mean, there are tons and tons of new classical schools, charter schools, Catholic schools, classical schools being founded all over the country. Sometimes often the, the woman I was speaking to this morning was a former homeschooler whose kids are now out of the house and she said, Okay, what's next? I'm gonna start a school. Right. I've learned from homeschooling my kids what works and what doesn't work. I've see I've plugged into this network, among other things, through Acton. Um, and and we're gonna start, we're gonna found a new school. And her daughter, her grown daughter is now teaching at a different classical charter school. There is a way, and this this was not on the on the map at all 10 years ago, right? Right. Like, I mean, it just it just wasn't. So there are ways to do uh institution building that can make a difference, I think. There's a lot of promise here. And I don't know what the next one will be. Um and Fortunately, it's not up to me to have to predict that. But the, the point is we empower people, right? And we send them out there and we say, look for ways to make the make this problem better, short of coercion. Um, and you never know what you're going to get. And that's exciting. And that's great. And I think there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of things that, that are probably coming, that can be coming, that um, A, would be, that would be potentially crowded out if we think that the only answer is to seize the reins of the state and to use it to force people to live the way we, we want to live. Um, and B, that could be, actually um, undermined by empowering a big state, right? So because it's not always going to be us who's in charge of that big state as, as we have seen. And these, these uh, experiments, in, such as the, the classical school movement, um, can be, they're, they're fragile in the beginning, right? And so a state that, that swoops in and says, no, you can't do that, can make or break them. So we want, this is the argument from our perspective, you know, from the federalist and the sort of more conservative perspective and the traditionalist perspective, um, 
for limited government, at least one of the arguments is we want to keep the government out of the way so that we can do these amazing other things. And we do not want to empower the state that is then that is then then powerful enough to be used to crush us. That I agree with entirely. I warned in advance that there would be violent agreement. Um, and I um, stayed true to my warning. So definitely Slade, uh, thank you so much for joining us and hope to have you back. I know, I don't know if it seems like too much Deneen stuff. Again, I don't know if it warrants it or not. I kind of feel like, you know, there was this, John Belushi used to do these great uh, SNL uh, commentaries where he would start incredibly reasonable and calm and measured. And then he would just get himself so worked up by the subject matter that he was talking about that he would eventually just have like a, a, a true fit and throw himself to the floor violently. Um, you know, don't even get me started on the Irish and their mothers. No. And they just freak out, whatever. And I kind of feel like I'm in danger of doing that with this Deneen stuff because there's just so much stuff I, um, that vexes me. It vexes me. Um, but I'll try to keep it within normal parameters. Anyway, um, very excited about our next guest, uh, who well, I'll keep it a secret and, but you'll be very excited about it too. And, um, just in case he doesn't come through and then like, what do I, I'll look like an idiot. So, um, and I have lots of ways, better ways of looking like an idiot. So with that, thanks everybody for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.